We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, but how often do we stop scrolling and just listen? I'm Malika Bilal, and starting May 1st, The Take will be a daily news podcast, bringing you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Al Jazeera Podcast. Global military spending has hit a new record. Parts of Europe saw the biggest increase since the end of the Cold War. And as the world witnesses more conflicts, can this trend be reversed? I'm Imran Khan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. So let's bring in our guest in Washington, Elizabeth Braw, senior fellow with the Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of The Defender's Dilemma, Identifying and Deterring Gray Zone Aggression. In New Delhi, Major General S.B. Astana, a former director general infantry in the Indian Army. General Astana is also the director of the United Service Institution of India, a national security and defense services think tank. And in Berlin, Domi Tiller Sagramosa, a senior lecturer in security and development at King's College London. A warm welcome to each of you. I'd like to begin in Washington, D.C., with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, if this report is to be believed, and the evidence is certainly there, then this is all about Ukraine, 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 and Russian aggression. That's why the world is arming. But is it as simplistic as that? It's partly as, as simplistic as that, and, and uh, separate the, the report that it releases every year uh, into the world's uh, arms expenditures. That is sort of the Bible that everybody uh, in the in the in the sector uses to to see where arms expenditures are going. And um, it is very much about Ukraine this year, but it's also about China. We are seeing. Um, Increased defense expenditures in uh, in China's neighborhood in response to 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 the worsening relations between China and its neighbors. But the most dramatic uh, increase is is clearly in Europe. I mean, twenty seven percent, thirty six percent, even in in Finland. That is, these are extraordinary figures uh, that of of growth in defense expenditure. And we should remember that uh, for. Uh, 15, 20 years after the end of the Cold War, the direction was completely opposite. Now it's uh, racing towards more and more expenditures. Uh, Dobby Tiller in Berlin. Here we are. We're looking at, you know, the biggest defence rise since the end of the Cold War. We're looking at almost traditional weaponry, heavy weapons, tanks, uh, helicopters, aircraft, that kind of a thing. Um, because of the Russian uh, inter, uh, the Russian war in Ukraine. But is this the right things that people should be spending their money on, uh, given that we're in the 21st century? Cyber warfare is still something that people need to be worried about. Or are we going almost backwards, do you think? Well, sadly, in a way, we are going backwards in terms of conflicts in the European continent. So we really do not have much of a choice. I mean, I think European publics would much prefer that uh, governments spend... Um, money and funding on health, education, uh, addressing climate change, uh, transformation of industry. Uh, I mean, there we have very serious challenges. But unfortunately, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is forcing uh, European countries to um, to spend uh, quite a lot, as was explained in in the military sector. So I think that this is a trend that for the next few years is not going to change, unfortunately. 
And, and uh, although it is very sad, I think this is a reality that now European publics are, are, are coming to terms with. They are understanding that this is a necessity um, and that they, these challenges are ahead and that uh, Europe uh, really benefited very much from these uh, decades of, uh, of uh, peace in the European continent. But unfortunately, the situation now uh, has changed. So uh, Europeans also are becoming increasingly aware, especially at the level of government, that Europe also needs to contribute more to its own defense. Uh, the reliance of the United States um, is, is, uh, is positive in some ways, but it also uh, presents challenges. And it's very clear with the war in Ukraine that uh, Europeans need to, uh, to also increase their defense spending and, and provide their, their fair share. Now, it's not just about Europe. Uh, it's also about China. When it comes to China, it's Pakistan, it's India. Let's bring in uh, General Astana uh, joining us from New Delhi. Um, there's no way India can keep up with China's defence spending. So you've got to spend smarter. Is that what India is doing or are you just trying to keep up? See, uh, as far as defence spending is concerned, every country has to decide uh, what is the threat to that country and thereafter structure its force structuring as well as defense spending. As far as India is concerned, perhaps we are the only country which has two belligerent neighbors, both are nuclear powers, and with both we have the unsettled borders. And we know Chinese aggression, uh, the way it has happened in South China Sea, the way it has happened in, uh, uh, the way the kind of uh, demonstrations which they keep doing in Taiwan, and the incremental encroachment strategy which China is doing in every domain, whether it is economic, digital, cyber, and you name a uh, element of warfare, whether kinetic or non-kinetic. But that's the way China is developing. So therefore, to ensure that we maintain our sovereignty and inter territorial integrity, we have to spend up to a point which we feel is appropriate for us to create a credible minimum deterrence with which we can ensure our territorial integrity and sovereignty. And that is what India is doing. And that is how you would see that the Indian defense expenditure, of course, uh, we did not, we were not fortunate enough that we, when we got independent, we had a marge, uh, we could have uh, had a big, uh, uh, shall I say, defense manufacturing sector, but we have created to some extent, but we are relying on external uh, exporters. And uh, it so happened uh, that since we didn't get too much of technology from the West initially, we were overly dependent on Russia, which right. we are aware of. Therefore, you will see uh, the difference, uh, the kind of uh, uh, diversification which we have done. And therefore, you will find that uh, it's increasingly right. getting more on USA, uh, France and uh, Israel. Well, let me speak. Let me speak now. Let me speak now to Elizabeth Broil. You've heard what our guest in New Delhi has had to say. We're having to spend money. India is having to spend money because of the threat it faces from China, from Pakistan. However, diplomacy is still the only way, real way through this. But here we are. The world is spending more money on weapons. Is that a damage to the diplomacy that's going on, or a failure of diplomacy? Well, I think we'd all like a world where uh, almost no money is being spent on weapons uh, because countries would choose to get along. But the problem is that as soon as you have one or more countries that refuse to accept uh, other countries' territorial uh, integrity and that behave in an aggressive way, then those other countries have to spend more, have to spend money, uh, or including more money on defense. And that's where we are today. And 
So that doesn't mean that uh, diplomacy can't uh, coexist or can't happen at the same time as countries spend more on defense. Clearly, uh, even when you spend more on defense um, as, a, as a country wishing to defend itself, uh, then you still hope that you won't need to use your weapons. You hope that those weapons will convince the other side that it's not worth attacking. And um, so even while you spend that money, additional money on defense, you conduct diplomacy with uh, belligerent countries or countries that may want to harm your country to uh, convey the message to them that really it's not worth attacking our country because we are willing to defend ourselves. And by the way, it would be better for you in all kinds of ways not to, to engage in a war against us because it would be costly for you in blood and treasure. And that's uh, these are the two parallel tracks that are happening in all these countries both in Europe and, and uh, in China's neighborhood, countries spending more on defense to communicate uh, that, uh, well, to, arm, to to better be able to defend themselves and to communicate to the other side that that is indeed the case, but also telling the other side, whether it be Russia or China, um, that, you know, you, you, you know, have a, a think better thoughts, engage in, in more productive uh, actions towards us because it would benefit uh, you mm. too and not just us. Uh, Tiller, one of the things we hear regularly on this show and one of the things that the Russians and the Chinese uh, say to me is the reason that we are in the position that we're in is because we have a sphere of influence. We have a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe that which the West doesn't respect, says Russia. We have a sphere of influence in um, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, the Philippines, Taiwan, etc., that the West doesn't respect either. And that's why when uh, we want to like, defend our position suddenly, uh, people start spending money on weapons. Is there a failure of listening to China and Russia's concerns here, a traditional failure of that? Well, I think the problem lies exactly in their narrative about, you know, the right to have spheres of influence where other countries are not in, allowed, according to them, to operate, where countries uh, that find themselves in this sphere of influence are losing uh, their sovereignty, they're losing their agency. And this is really unacceptable. And uh, we are listening uh, carefully to what uh, they have to say. But, uh, uh, you know, we understand the security concerns. Uh, if we think about Russia in particular, uh, there's been a lot of efforts before the war broke out uh, in February of last year to try to find a negotiated outcome, to try to understand and, and, and address issues of security and confidence and, and transparency with Russia. Uh, through various channels, bilaterals with the United States, uh, through NATO, Russia Council, through the OSCE, and Russia decided to sideline these channels and to just move ahead with the use of force in Ukraine. So I think that it's very important uh, to send a message also that we need to uphold international law, the right of sovereignty and territorial integrity of these countries. We understand that security cannot be built at the expense of other countries, of other powers. That's why it's very important to try to reconfigure the, you know, the, the theaters of, of defense and security, both in Europe and in Asia. But that cannot come at the expense of uh, like great powers uh, deciding uh, the fate of smaller countries and changing the borders uh, through the use of force. So what we are talking here is really to upholding international law uh, and, and, and not allowing uh, bigger powers to sort of decide the fate uh, of smaller countries. I think that's one of the lessons that we learned from the Cold War and the post-Cold War period 
was really a period where we're trying to uh, support and sustain uh, the sovereignty and the uh, independent foreign policy of these countries. Uh, General Astana, one of the roles China has played in the conflict between, and the conflicts, various conflicts between Pakistan and India, and the effective Cold War that still continues between Pakistan and India, is it stopped it becoming a hot war. India has, look, has looked at China's backing almost without any kind of clauses to Pakistan, and that stopped a war. So it is useful in some way, right? So far, in most of the wars with Pakistan, China never intervened. But the situation has changed to a great extent. Now, Chinese, with their economic engagement and CPEC getting into Pakistan, uh, their stakes in Pakistan have increased. At the same time, you would notice that when Pakistan is continuously launching proxy war against India, uh, Chinese, firstly, they look the other way around, and secondly, they have tried to shield a number of UN-designated terrorists too. So therefore, China, uh, Pakistan is a low-cost nuisance value uh, for uh, uh, to India, uh, working on behalf of China in a way. And as far as Pakistan is concerned, China is a high-value security guarantor to them. That's one issue. The second issue is that there is a Sino-Pak nexus. There is an increasing footprints of Chinese soldiers also in certain areas of Gilgit-Baltistan, which is not comfortable to us. So therefore, uh, in future conflict, to say that Sino-Pak nexus will not work uh, may be an understatement, although we expect that China to behave in a particular manner as they have behaved so far. That's number one. Number two, as far as Sino-Indian uh, confrontation is concerned, we are already having a standoff. And in that standoff, Pakistan has not intervened. So this nexus has not uh, worked in that manner. But right. notwithstanding that, as far as we are concerned, uh, they both are a threat. And to make sure that uh, we confront a twin threat or two-front threat, we have to make sure and believe our adversaries that we can handle two-front threat. And if we can do so, then obviously there will be no two-front threat, so long they know that we can handle it. I want to change tack now and bring in Elizabeth Abraw here. I want to talk about the finances of, uh, of uh, this arms, effectively arms race that's it's going on. Let's take a look at Saudi Arabia, spending billions and billions of dollars upgrading uh, their defensive uh, capabilities. This is good news for the business, but when it's this, when there's this much money floating around, you tend to get politics involved as well. You tend to get people wanting to sell weapons. I guess what I'm asking you is... We're in a boom time, and because it's a boom time, actually rolling back on defence spending is going to be very difficult because people are making too much money, right? Uh, people are making a lot of money, or defence companies are making a lot of money. And since you mentioned Saudi Arabia, part of the, the reason that Saudi Arabia has managed to, to establish uh, this extraordinarily powerful position in international politics is that it has uh, bought, uh, in not just in recent years, but over, over many years, a lot of defence equipment from, from Western arms manufacturers, well, from, from many kinds of arms manufacturers, uh, even though it didn't need all that weaponry, because uh, defence companies, especially in the West, as Western companies, Western countries, Western governments, reduce defense spending, their 
uh, defense companies were desperate to sell weaponry and Saudi Arabia bought a lot of it, which of course um, yeah. made it very popular with Western governments. So the, 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 the challenge with uh, defense companies or arms manufacturers is that they make products that only governments can buy. So they are very dependent on whether governments are in the mood to buy defense equipment, i.e. weapons at any given time. They can't turn to the general public and say, well, we'll expand our, our clientele. That doesn't work. Um, so they they go from from rags to riches or not not so 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 uh, really extreme as as to be rags but uh, rags to riches uh, it, as the 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 fortunes of the world uh, wax and wane and so what we have now is uh, lots of Western governments catching up right. uh, with with defense spending but then facing the the issue that oh the the, the arms makers don't have enough. Uh, uh, space in their order books to accommodate all these weapons that now mm. Western governments and, and indeed many kinds of governments now want to buy. Uh, Tommy Tiller, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because once one country in one particular region starts to spend money, then the neighbours look at them and say, OK, we probably should do this as well. We're seeing this here in the Middle East. Qatar is almost rebuilding its own army. It's spending billions and billions of dollars. It doesn't manufacture anything domestically, so it has to buy all of these weapons in. When you're spending that kind of money, it also gives you influence uh, with the countries you're spending that money in. The nexus between the politics influence and the money being spent is also quite heady, isn't it? So for a country like Qatar, for Saudi Arabia, it actually gives them an outsized influence whilst they're buying that weaponry, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it, it's not automatic. I mean, many countries are buying weaponry and then they're carrying out more independent foreign policies, uh, you know, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, the, the purchases are, are, are quite complex, as happened, you know, in the case of Turkey was trying to buy uh, Russian uh, military equipment. So, you know, and, and Turkey is a NATO member. Uh, so I think that, you know, I mean, we have instances where, for example, you mentioned um, uh, Saudi Arabia, which is now carrying out an energy policy which is not very favorable to, to the West and to the United States. Uh, because it, it reduced production to increase um, the price of, of, of oil. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a, a sort of an automatic um, sort of policy. Clearly, uh, there are situations where countries depend very much because they are in a state of war. This is a case of Russia. It's depending very much on countries that could provide uh, military support, in particular, it's trying to get military support from China. So in that case, you can argue that China has some leverage because, uh, you know, Russia is trying to find weaponry uh, and, and trying to purchase it from China to uh, to um, carry out its, its military operations in, in Ukraine. So that, in that particular situation, of course, you have, uh, you know, you have a lot more leverage. The same, in a way, applies to the leverage that Western countries have over Ukraine, because Ukraine is heavily dependent on uh, on support and purchases from uh, NATO member states and others. So, um, to a great extent, you know, it creates uh, some, you know, leverage, uh, especially if there is a military conflict and a military situation. If there isn't this kind of military conflict or situation, you know, the countries have a lot more room for maneuver. Uh, and so I think that, uh, you know, the situation is a bit more complex. Uh, in New Delhi, uh, General Astana, I want to ask you a question. You mentioned uh, one of the key partners for uh, India is Israel. 
Now, Israel's a very controversial partner when it comes to buying weapons from because of the battle testing it does with those weapons in, for example, the Gaza Strip every time there is a war. There is a political consideration here as well when you're buying weaponry. It's who you're buying those weapons from. Is it simply a matter of can we get them at the best price possible and most effective, or is there, is there a political consideration? Uh, as far as India is concerned, let me tell you in no uncertain terms, it is purely and squarely what meets our qualitative requirement of the weapon. And in that, we have a system of global tender. Whoever gives the tender, irrespective of what everybody has to go through a trial, because we have a variety of terrain in the country uh, where the equipment is going to be employed. And therefore, uh, at, uh, it may well happen uh, that uh, USA javelin doesn't qualify and uh, Israelis uh, spy qualifies. So these are certain, uh, uh, I would say it's purely done as per our qualitative requirement and not as per the politics. Uh, the right. politics uh, can be very well covered by media and uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a different game. But as a professional, I can tell you in no uncertain terms, uh, because a fair amount of equipment uh, was purchased when uh, we, uh, I, uh, we when I happened to be on the chair. But let me tell you that uh, we don't compromise on that on that quality part of it. Uh, secondly, uh, when it comes to our requirements, our requirements has to be not only uh, the operational requirement, terrain requirement, but also an area to become self-reliant. So we look for a country who is ready to do some transfer of technology so that we cannot. Uh, we can't keep buying uh, weapons uh, from outside uh, uh, forever. Sorry, uh, so sorry, General, we are running out of time, and I want to come to our other. I want to come to our other guests as as well, Elizabeth. Let me just make that point to you. Um, it's a business decision for India to where it buys its weapons from. It's that, and that's all it is, uh, says uh, General Astana. But there is a political uh, decision-making process as well. You can't divorce the two, particularly within the West. There's simply too many people that will say too many different things. But ultimately, when you're selling weapons, when you're buying weapons, is it just about the business? It's not just about uh, the, the, the business aspect. And I think this is what makes... Uh, weapons different from uh, or weaponry, uh, military weaponry, different from, from any kind of other product that you could possibly sell as a company uh, because you're selling it to a government. And in a sense, if you are a, 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 a weapons manufacturer, you represent the country in, in which you are based. So let's say you're, you're um, an American weapons manufacturer, for better or worse, good and ill, uh, you represent America. That is often an advantage because America's allies want to buy American weaponry because then they have the same weaponry as, as the U.S. armed forces and makes everything very easy. And they also buy themselves friendship in Washington. But uh, you also have the disadvantage that you can't really sell to China uh, mm. or, or to Russia because the U.S. government would prevent that. Uh, so it's it's always, there is there are always political overtones. Now, India is, in a sense, a special case because there's always... Um, has always said it, it, it's free to, to buy weapons from whom, whomever it likes and has buy, bought from Russia, has bought from many others, uh, but that is more the exception. And most of most countries uh, stick with uh, friendly uh, friendly countries from whom they buy, they buy most of their, their weaponry. Uh, Dobby Tiller, very quickly, because we are running out of time, but I just want to come to you. Um, there's simply too much money involved when it comes to selling arms to actually have any other consideration other than money. Surely. 
Yes, of course. I mean, there is a geostrategic or geopolitical consideration. If we if we consider, for example, the sales of Russian military equipment uh, within what we call the Collective Security Treaty Organization, uh, Russia was selling equipment at uh, at lower prices than the market, and and these countries uh, were benefiting from this um, uh, relationship. Uh, and Russia was helping them to develop their armed forces throughout the years. And, and you know, in, you know, helping them with military training and, and and so on. So certainly, I mean, there is a political uh, security dimension which is tied to to many of these sales, as was explained by the other speakers. And I think we we, I mean, this is this is totally um, you know understandable because you also want to have compatibility, interoperability, and the war in Ukraine is clearly showing the challenges when you have a partner like Ukraine, which relies primarily on 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 Russia and former Soviet equipment, and we in the West, in NATO, we don't have uh, many... Some countries in the East do have uh, former Soviet uh, ammunition and equipment, but others do not. You know, we rely on Western equipment and technology. So when you try to help this partner, you're trying to find globally sources of ammunition that can help, uh, you know, the war machine. So that complicates matters, and it clearly shows how, e you know, how much easier it is when countries in a particular alliance share the similar sort of technology, uh, arms industries, and compatibility of, of products. I want to thank all our guests, Elizabeth Raw, Major General S. V. Astana, and Domitila Sagramosa. This episode was produced by Mohamed Elaishi, Alexandra Baez, Fung Yenguin, and Jimmy Getahan. Studio San was by Yada Atalla, and the program was edited by Venetia Valilath, Lynn Enguin, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next episode.